people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW look back podcast. And today is pay per view day. Danny and I bloody love pay-per-view day. Today we're looking at Starcade 95. And with me, as always, is the wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. How are we doing, my friend? I'm doing really well, thank you. Si, how are you today? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Uh, this is it then. The end of 1995. Uh, a pay-per-view to watch. And it's the World Cup of Wrestling, we're told. Excited? Absolutely, yep. We ended in 95 with, with a bang. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This um, this pay-per-view is quite a, an intriguing one for me because it's it's a real mixture, I think. We've got we've got the old guard there in some of the guys like, like the likes of Luger, the likes of Sting and so on, who have been around WCW for a, a long old time. Uh, granted, Luger only came back in 95, but he was a WCW Jim Crockett Promotions mainstay for many years. We've got some of the newer faces and the likes of Benoit and Guerrero and so on. But then we've got these kind of interpromotional matches as well with uh, with the, the the World Cup of Wrestling as they're describing it, WCW versus New Japan Pro Wrestling, and it's a, a best of seven series. So seven matches, first to four wins the the World Cup, as they say. And then we've also got the title matches at the end of the card for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. But it's really intriguing to me in the time that we've sort of come across looking at it ourselves, Danny, because. We're on the verge of, of the Forbidden Door show with AEW, which, again, is a New Japan crossover show with an American promotion, which I'm really, really excited about. But it's interesting looking at the, the, the build-up to Forbidden Door and all the excitement with that, but also knowing that WCW did it first so many, many, many years ago, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. There's a saying that says the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I think this is a good example of that. Yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, obviously, this isn't the first occasion where WCW worked with New Japan. We'd had uh, shows in Japan. We've had shows elsewhere around the world as well. But this is Starcade. This is what they're, in theory, their biggest event, their oldest event for certain. And the whole premise of the pay-per-view is built around these two main aspects, the World Cup of Wrestling and then the World Heavyweight title matches at the end of the evening. A little bit of background, I suppose, quickly on the pay-per-view. It was first aired, it was live, sorry, on the 27th of December, 1995, which was a Wednesday night in Nashville, Tennessee. It drew a crowd of 8,200 people to the arena. I'm pretty certain not all paid, but there we go. 
But what was interesting to me was the pay-per-view buy rate for this event. It only attracted 75,000 buys. Now, going back through WCW buy rates and pay-per-view numbers and so on, this is actually the lowest bought pay-per-view since Hulk Hogan arrived in the company. And it's the lowest rated pay-per-view in, in terms of pay-per-view buys, buy rate and so on, since you know Battle Bowl in 1993. So it's going back quite a way as being substantially lower than some of its counterparts. I mean, you could argue a few different things. It's two days after Christmas. Maybe that plays into things here. I don't know. It's a Wednesday night. Maybe that plays into things here. But I can guarantee you that there's a certain Mr. Balea who would point the finger at himself and say, I wasn't on the card, brother. Absolutely. That was my first thought as well. It was like, you know, Hulk Hogan's just sitting back, just stroking that Fu Manchu and thinking, I, I knew they would fail without me. <laughs> and the thing as well is the the next pay-per-view we we have a clash of champions coming up but the next pay-per-view is super brawl in february for us as, as we sort of step into 1996 hogan is back on the card then still in the red and yellow and the pay-per-view buy rate for that event is more than double this one so i think as much as we dislike the guy and as much as we can argue it's a Wednesday night, it's Christmas time, whatever. I think there is some truth in the fact that Hogan not being on the card may have actually hurt this pay-per-view a bit. What do you think, Danny? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a lot like when John Cena took some time off in, uh, I think it was 2012, and uh, CM Punk was main event in the pay-per-views. The pay-per-view buyers were substantially lower, and uh, as much as the fans were sick of John Cena, you can't deny his drawing power, so very, very similar case there. Yeah, except the big difference is the match quality went up with Punk. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> ooh fighting words there, Sai, fighting words. <laughs> uh, we start the show with a quite cool intro. Uh, very 90s, very in-your-face, very loud and brash and colourful, talking about the World Cup of Wrestling, introducing some of the competitors in, the, in these matches and so on. We have Bobby the Brain Heenan on commentary with Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes, which is quite an interesting trio there. Three voices that we don't, so far, we haven't sort of had much together, but I know it sort of sticks around for a while longer after this. And we go straight into the World Cup of Wrestling. Our opening contest is Jushin Thunder Liger, accompanied to the ring by Sonny Ono, who accompanies all the Japanese wrestlers all night long. He loves a camera, that bloke. He's like the Japanese Jimmy Hart, I guess. That's and, a great analogy, actually. <laughs> and Liger is facing the newest member of the Four Horsemen, Chris Benoit. This goes a little over 10 minutes. Uh, what are your thoughts on the opener? The first thing that gave me a laugh about this match was uh, Chris Benoit being labelled as an American by Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to get serious, um, it was really, really good. This was a fast-paced action match. Um, to me, this was match of the night, uh, to, just to break straight into it. Um, and there was a lot, a lot of back and forth in this. Um, yeah, what did you think of it, Si? I, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was really good. And it's it's one of those scenarios where, I mean, WCW do it a lot going forward, putting the cruiserweights in the opener of their pay-per-views. And I suppose they've done it with Johnny B. Bad in what we've seen so far as well. Not saying that Johnny B. Bad is a cruiserweight by any stretch of the imagination, but they've had his match in the opener because it gets people off their seat. And, and the same as the cruiserweights get people off their seat. And it's an exciting start to the show. 
Liger and Benoit do the same here. This is, like I said, 10 minutes long, and it's bloody fantastic. It's one of the best matches, I think. This is one of the best matches we've seen so far on Nitro Nights. I wish it was a few minutes longer because I was enjoying it that much. But it got everyone off their seat. It got everyone fired up. It got the show started. As an opener, It was I, I thought it really did well. I mean, if anything, there's an argument to say maybe it was too good. And there's people in the back watching this match wondering how they could potentially follow that because it was that good. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, there's an argument for that potentially. But in, on the whole, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I would implore people, if you're going to watch this pay-per-view and you're, and you're not going to watch the whole thing all the way through, definitely have this match as part of your watch list. I, I thought it was excellent. Absolutely. Um, there was something I wanted to point out. There was a great um, bow and arrow applied by Liger that was reversed into a crossface spot. I don't know if you saw that. That was really cool. Yeah, that's that's classic Liger. He, he employs that a lot, the bow and arrow, and it kind of drops down onto the knees. And he sort of puts it into a cross-face kind of dragon sleeper-esque kind of, you know, sort of talking back on the guy's neck. Very, very, you know, effective and, and looks vicious as well. I mean, ultimately, Liger wins the match by uh, pinning Benoit after a distraction with Kevin Sullivan. So we don't quite know what's going on there because Sullivan is obviously WCW. So why would he come down and distract the WCW guy for the the New Japan guy to win? But I suppose we'll find more out as the pay-per-view and the coming week's television progresses, potentially, Danny. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I did write that down. I did get a little bit uncomfortable when Kevin Sullivan came down to uh, interact with Chris Benoit. But um, yeah, other than that, it was a great match. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was absolutely fantastic. Strongly recommend people check that out. So, New Japan Pro Wrestling are one up after our opener. We go straight into our second contest in the World Cup of Wrestling with, and I apologize to everybody out there, I'm going to butcher these Japanese names all the way through the show. So just bear with me. We have Koji Kenimoto, I believe that is pronounced, uh, again with Son- Sonny Ono. And he is facing Alex Wright. And much like the opener, which featured a Japanese wrestler versus a Canadian wrestler, the crowd are chanting USA, USA to this one, which faced, which features a Japanese wrestler facing a German wrestler. So well done, Tennessee. Um, <laughs> this one was a touch longer. And I, I suppose in, in my mind, potentially struggled to live up to the opener, maybe a little bit. I mean, it was still good, but uh, what, what did you think, Danny? Yeah, I 100% agree because um, the, the, you can't follow a, a match like that with the uh, opener. But it was, yeah, it was it was still solid, and um, there was a there was a lot of like um, like the first one. There was a lot of back and forth. I would have put this um, a little further up on the card if I was uh, booking this, but it was still very good. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I think we get a little bit too much uh, in the way of top rope drop kicks on this one. It seems that it seems that that's all, there was a period in the match where both guys were desperate to just land a top rope drop kick and try it again and again and again. And that kind of wore a bit thin for me. Uh, I mean, Kanemoto here, he's the OWGP junior heavyweight champion and brings the belt to the ring with him. So he's obviously a wrestler of, of, of good pedigree and we get some real vicious work on, on Alex Wright's uh, leg at the at the beginning, some some quite interesting uh, holds he applies on the mat there, and so on. And whilst this is going on, there's comments about people training and so on from the commentators, and they talk about training up in the Smoky Mountains and wrestling up in the Smoky Mountains because you know Tennessee and so on. 
To which Tony Schiavone declares very loudly and proudly, no one wrestles in the Smoky Mountains. Now, that, I think, was a real sort of tongue-in-cheek dig at Mr. Cornette and his Smoky Mountain Wrestling Company. Because this pay-per-view is, in the last few days of December 1995, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Jim Cornette's promotion, closed its doors in December 95. So I think that was a little bit of a side swipe by Schiavone towards Cornette and the fact that his company had, had had gone tits up. What do you think, Danny? Yeah, I noticed the um, dig, but I didn't know that SMW had closed its doors around that time. But yeah, that, that month, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that because that makes it a lot more clear of why they would have put that on um, commentary. That little line there, because we all know um, Jim Collett hated WSW around this time. So, oh, I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, if you tell him that now, he'll probably make a five-hour podcast uh, in response. <laughs> Yeah, just ranting and calling Shivani out and stuff, I suppose. <laughs> uh, we get quite a cool spot with Alex Wright when he's kind of, he's led across the top rope. His, his, his shoulders are over one part of the top rope. His legs are over the other in the corner. And his opponent here, Kanimoto, is chopping his chest and then drop kicks him as, as Wright is led across the top rope, almost in a cradle position. I thought that was quite unique. Yeah, that was pretty cool as well. Um, I n- did notice as well the crowd was really behind Alex Wright here as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, what are your thoughts on Alex Wright then? Before we get to the finish of this match, what what are your thoughts on Alex? We've seen him a few times now, and I mean, I- I'll give mine in a moment. But I'm just curious as as he's somebody that you said you weren't particularly familiar with until we started our watch back. So now you've seen him a few times, and you've seen him here in a pay per view match that is 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 pretty good. What are your overall thoughts on on the Alex Wright character and wrestler? I just find him really entertaining. He's solid in the ring. Um, They mentioned, I think he was in his early 20s here. Um, And I think, yeah, he's definitely going to be someone that you can build a wrestling company around because um, he's got a good character as well. Yeah, top marks all around. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Fair enough. I I reckon he's, he's really interesting because, I mean, he wrestles in a almost cruiserweight style at times. There's there's a moonsault that he chucks out quite a bit. And as I mentioned, the top rope drop kicks and, and he's quite an aerial competitor. But at the same time, he's got this really long gangly body. So sometimes, some of the, I think sometimes some of the moves he tries to do, his own body shape doesn't quite allow them to look as spectacular as they might well be for a guy his size. But I, I always enjoy watching the guy wrestle whenever we've seen him so far. The one thing I'm not, I can't get on board with is, is the leather jacket though. I think when he comes to the ring and he's because he's wearing traditional wrestling gear, he's got his boots, he's got his knee pads, he's got his trunks, and then he's got this leather jacket on. And it's, I mean, it's always been a bit of a weird one for me. It's like if you see a guy come to the ring and they're wearing a jacket that they're zipped up, but they're in trunks, it's almost like they've just forgotten to put their trousers on as opposed to wearing a, wearing a jacket to a wrestling match. Do you know what I mean? It does. Um, Finn Baylor does the same thing now, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's just a bit odd. You know, and when they, when they wear a t-shirt as well, sometimes and the t-shirt isn't tucked in, so the t-shirt goes over the trunks, so you can't see they're wearing wrestling trunks. It looks like they've just walked out the house with like their trousers on or something. Bit of an odd yeah. one, but there we go. Kenny Moto pulls off a pretty impressive moonsault. We get a few double drop kick moments here, where the guys are coming off the top rope and one's trying to drop kick the other, and so on. Here, it did start to drag a little bit for me. And I think the crowd felt the same. And maybe they were a bit worn out from that fantastic opener. Uh, and they, they sort of quietened down a little bit here. 
but eventually, after all the the sort of spectacular moonsaults and and top rope moves and and all these vicious uh, submission holds that they're using on the mat, uh, Kenny Moto just wins with a roll up, and that's that. Yeah, that I found that weird. Two the first two matches ending in the same with the same finish. Um, that was a bit odd for me, but yeah, it was, it was solid matches. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely two good openers. Too. I mean, the first the, the opener itself was fantastic. This one didn't quite live up to that opening contest, but it was still a good a good watch as well. So, yeah, so far you know two for two for New Japan, but also two for two for for me with regards to to, to good matches to watch. I think, Danny. Yeah, they're pretty much the same. Yeah, great stuff. We then get our first sighting of Minji Oakland, and he is plugging the hotline where apparently you can speak to Mark Madden about a wrestler who has been offered big, big money to jump ship and come to WCW from the WWF. But he won't tell you who it is. You've got to ring the hotline. So everyone make sure you get your parents' permission first. And then we are greeted by Sonny Ono again, because we haven't seen him enough already, have we? And <laughs> he is talking about the World Cup of Wrestling, and maybe if they win the World Cup of Wrestling, he will buy WCW. And, and he, he comes across like a, a really old-fashioned, almost 1960s, early 70s, sneaky James Bond villain in this. You know, that, that sort of vibe that you get from, like, you know, live and let die and all that sort of stuff, I think. Yeah, I completely understand that reference because um, you just you, you see it with, like, the way he's dressed and the amount of times he appears on the show and him just being interviewed here is just it is pretty cool as well yeah without a date without a date uh our next contest is again part of the world cup of wrestling but it involves somebody who is also taking part in the world title picture later in our show we have uh, masahiro chono masa chono as he is known sometimes wrestling lex luger now this is this is quite a big deal. I mean, Chono was a big, big name in Japanese wrestling. He was a, a member of the Japanese side, Japanese version of the New World Order. He has held the WCW world title in the past, going back, I believe, 1991-ish, 1990, 1991, 92, trading it with Flair, potentially. And he, he's also been IWGP champion and so on. And he's facing here Lex Luger, who has been WCW world champion. And as bland as some people think Lex can be, he's one of those interesting things on WCW TV at the moment because of this whole uh, odd dynamic friendship thing going on with Sting, I reckon. So this to me is, 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 a, is a big, big match on this show. Uh, how did you find this one, Danny? Really good as well. Um, this was just like two monsters just going at it, wasn't it? It was like mm. the the big thing that stood out to me opening for this match was the pop that Lex Luger got. It was massive, wasn't it? Yeah, I've got to know about that. The cried bloody love Luger here, don't they? And uh, the, the, the the commentators are selling it as you know he's the American guy, he's the WCW guy, so he is almost, I suppose, the the home guy. I guess to the crowd in the arena that night. And that does make sense, but he's been a heel on television, but here in this arena, they are going mad for Luger. They bloody love him. Don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And he's working as a face throughout this whole match because Chono is working stiff um, with like kicks, chokes and things like that. But Lex Luger is definitely working as a face throughout this entire match. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I mean, Luger takes control early on 
we get a weird outside bit though. That there's there's a bit where both wrestlers jump out the ring, and they're stood either side of the ring, looking at each other, pointing, and then one would walk around one side of the corner, and the other would walk around the other side. And uh, I don't know quite what that was trying to achieve. It was almost like a little standoff without being close enough for it to be a proper standoff, maybe. I'm not quite sure what they were going for there, Danny. I think they were just wasting time just to fill the (laughs) pay-per-view. Ah, okay. (laughs) I wish they'd wasted more time and cut some time off that bloody triangle match, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Uh, But we get Bobby Heenan here on commentary is absolutely fantastic throughout the entire show. And we get a moment with Tony Schiavone referencing Jimmy Hart and saying that, Lots of managers uh, are known to have taken their their wrestlers for a ride or t- conned their conned their wrestlers and so on. And um, Bobby Heenan turns around and says, "I've heard about that." Yes, <laughs> so it's like not him in the slightest. And it's just the way Bobby delivered that line; it was absolutely superb. Oh yeah, you could in this match, Dusty and um, Bobby were definitely having a lot of fun. You could tell. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we get the STF applied by Chono, which is his finisher. And he, you know, he, in the in the introduction period of the match, Tony Schiavone is explaining that he is the master of the STF, and it does look a damn sight better than anything John Cena pulled out of his arse. Let's put it that way. And uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I wrote down. So. <laughs> oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah, very true, very true. Dusty then kind of becomes a little bit agitated and starts almost mocking Tony Schiavone. Because Tony Schiavone is trying to use the right name for for moves. Yeah, I noticed that. That was very um, odd because uh, that's something you'd expect in the WWE where um, a commentator's, like, say, Matt Stryker's being um, taken the mick out because he's using the correct terminology. But uh, Dusty's kind of like, ah, oh, just, just like, don't take it as seriously, kid. Yeah, and Bobby Heenan jumps in on this as well. And for, for a little moment, it almost, it almost feels a little bit uncomfortable because Shivani is sat there with both of these big, larger-than-life characters just going at him. I mean, he refers to a, a quite a stiff, straight-legged um, big boot from Chono as the mafia kick. Now, that is what Chono called the move. That is what it was. That's what it's referred to as. And they're all laughing at him, saying mafia kick. It's a big boot to the face. What are you on about? And so on. And they all, uh, he's also referred to a German suplex as, as exactly that, a German suplex, to which Bobby Heenan starts digging on about other places in the world and starts talking about a Sicilian elbow and uh, a Rio de Janeiro backdrop and all this sort of nonsense. It's like, it's funny when it's coming from Heenan, but when it's coming from Heenan and Dusty at the same time, and you can hear Tony Schiavone not quite knowing how to respond, it was a little bit awkward at times. Yeah, he was definitely, Tony Schiavone was definitely trying to play it straight. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, the finish comes when Chono leaves the top rope and Luger turns and hits him almost with a kind of back elbow, I suppose, almost Judas effect-ish, and then applies the rack to a huge pop from the crowd. We've mentioned it before, Danny, haven't we? That movie is incredibly over. But the, the what I want to touch upon is the back elbow by Luger. Every replay they showed, that looked amazing. That looked like it genuinely just knocked Chono out. You know, it was so well-timed and so well done, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. It was very stiff. And I'm not sure if um, fans were expected to remember that he had uh, metal in that arm as well, I believe. 
<laughs> yes, good point. Good point. That metal plate from his motorcycle accident. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose he could be, you know, forgiven for being a bit nervous as well, Luger, because uh, people chanting USA, USA at him and then wrestling a Japanese opponent hasn't always gone well for him in the past, does it? Oh, no, it has not. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he got a nice balloon display at SummerSlam 93 because that, that count out win was really important, apparently. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we now when I sat at two to one in favour of New Japan and we get an interview with Sting with Mean Gene. And this is a real odd one for me because this is great. Sting is fantastic. And I, I can't take my eyes off the screen. He's colorful. He's loud. He's everything you'd expect. But I've got no real idea what was said. You weren't the only one, side. So this was a bit confusing. But um, one good thing he did say in this was that at least he acknowledged that he lost a few months ago. Yeah, they're talking about him losing the United States Championship to uh, Kenzuki Sasaki, who he is wrestling again on the card today. The United States title is not up for grabs on the pay-per-view, they say, but Sting has already lost to Sasaki, uh, but he is facing him in, in the World Cup of Wrestling here. So that's quite an interesting twist there. And we also get him saying, oh, I think Johnny B. Bad's up next, isn't he? Which is, you know, Sting trying to give the vote of confidence to his teammates i suppose which was quite a nice touch yeah definitely and then that leads us straight into the match doesn't it yeah and masa saito is facing johnny v bad uh, and again this is a big big name from japanese wrestling numerous tag team titles in, in new japan and so on johnny v bad we've sang the praises of in recent weeks always entertaining his matches always surprised with how good they are they're not top of the card five-star classics for any stretch of the imagination but they always tend to be better than we expect going in i guess this one kind of just didn't quite hit the mark for me though i could see that i could see that as well um i didn't know who um, master saito was because um i hadn't watched much of him but i think something that was really cool was bobby heenan acknowledging that he used to manage him in the awa mm. yeah i love little throwbacks like that it's great i don't think you get them enough in well, I'll say that in AEW, you do. In AEW, they're all about talking history and past companies and so on. In the WWE, it's almost like what's happened before WWE doesn't exist. So I can understand the, the marketing strategy behind that and the motivation for, for, for them working that way. But it's almost a shame that they don't sort of comment on, especially companies like WCW, the AWA, and so on that don't exist anymore. They're no longer competition to the WWF. So there's no reason why they can't be mentioned, I suppose. That's Vince McMahon's mindset, unfortunately, isn't it? But like, just that little comment from Bobby Heenan, it, it did send me on about a half an hour um, YouTube binge of uh, Master Sato because I wanted to see what Bobby Heenan looked like in the AWA. So even things like that can uh, really help. Yeah, I mean, there is some great stuff as well. If you go on the network and check out some AWA wrestling, the weekly television and so on. I mean, Mr. Perfect, Nick Botwinkle, and so on. Some, some absolutely superb stuff coming from the AWA there. I mean, the, the Rockers, before they became the Rockers, I mean, they were the Midnight Rockers in AWA. And you can see how talented Sean and Marty were, even in those days. Just really, really good stuff to watch. Just avoid the tag team classic, because you know, the, the, sorry, the team, the team classic, because that is, that is ropey. Um, <laughs> uh, Johnny B. Bad is still being accompanied by Kimberly here after, I suppose freeing her from the clutches of diamond dallas page shall we say but she, this isn't kimberly as we know her this isn't kimberly in the sparkly dress this isn't kimberly the valet this is kimberly the cheerleader i guess yeah i found that a bit odd um 
that's something we we weren't used to uh, seeing. But it looks like she's gone under complete character change now. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit. A bit of compared to what she was. It's quite a departure, isn't it? Compared to, compared to where she was. It, I did it, like, it was. I did like the way she had to tell the cameraman to back up though, because she wanted to do a cartwheel in the entranceway. That was quite funny. Yeah, I, I agreed with that. But the thing is, like, I think we're going to have to start watching Saturday night because uh, we want to see how this um, transformation happened. I don't want to do it, Danny. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> uh, maybe in the future. <laughs> maybe, maybe. We could start way back when, you know, Saturday night way back in the 80s or whatever. Uh, maybe that's, that's another podcast for another time. <laughs> this is... As I said, a bit scrappy, a bit punch kicky. Uh, there's not really a whole lot going on in this sort of five to six minutes. Uh, eventually, Johnny B. Bad wins via disqualification. But there's not really much there at all. I, mean, I, I don't know if it's a clash of styles, potentially. I don't know if it's um, uh, that both of them uh, work quite different styles and they couldn't quite mesh here. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, this one didn't quite do it for me, Danny. No, it it kind of um, was just kind of there. But one thing that really stood out to me was um, Tony Schiavone mentioning that Craig Pittman was turned down by Rob Parker on Saturday night. So they're continuing that Craig Pittman storyline where he's trying to find a manager. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. He's asked, who's he asked? He's asked Hart, hasn't he? He asked Bobby Heenan. And now Rob Parker. Maybe he's coming for Kimberley. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, potentially, potentially. Oh man, can you imagine getting turned down by you know Colonel Parker? What a shambles on Saturday night as well. So, yeah. <laughs> dear me, poor fella, poor fella. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that levels us up then, doesn't it? To a piece in the World Cup of Wrestling, we have an interview then with Luger and Jimmy Hart with Mean Gene, and they're talking the title picture, and Luger's flexing away. Uh, and we, we find out that Jimmy Hart is not going to be in Luger's corner. He wants to do this one on his own. So I'm quite happy about that because sometimes I think th- there's too much Jimmy Hart on television. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know. I wrote that down. I, I, wrote, I bet Sai is happy with Lex Luger right now. <laughs> yeah. I've not got a massive issue with Jimmy Hart. It's just, it's, it's too much Jimmy Hart sometimes. You know, and when he's all over yeah. the television with the Dungeon of Doom and Luger and so on, it gets a bit much. Now, if he's if he was out there, I mean, Luger potentially could wrestle three matches on this show. If Jimmy Hart is out there for all three matches, that's too much Jimmy Hart. Indefinitely, and Saliano was already filling that role anyway. So, well, yeah, he's turned, he's he's there all the time. I'm surprised he didn't turn up in the world title match just to you know, just for the sake of it. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> oh man! After this, we get potentially. The match of the night, along with the opener, I think the opener is the opener for me was class, but this one I think runs it close. We have Eddie Guerrero versus Shinhiro Atani, uh, going you know, damn near a quarter of an hour long, um, and it's 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 a great wrestling match. Loads of great arm drags, counters, back and forths. Uh, I'm not going to go into it too in depth because again, I think people don't want to hear me describe a match move for move. I think if, if it's good, they, they can go and watch it themselves. It's 13 minutes of your time. That would be very well spent watching this contest. Um, the one thing I could say maybe is it is a touch long. It kind of lost its way in the last couple of minutes. And you're thinking, okay, they could have shaved those couple of minutes off. 
But on the whole, I thought this is up there with the opener as potentially the match of the night, Danny. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it, to me, it just falls a, a tad bit under the opener, but it was very, very good. Um, Dusty Rhodes put over Eddie Guerrero huge um, just after his entrance. It was just like, this is going to be the future guy. So that, I thought that was pretty cool as well. Um, and Eddie Guerrero's uh, crucifix powerbomb is amazing. I, I actually forgot about it because he didn't really use it in WWE. But yeah, that is, how, did you really like that crucifix oh. powerbomb? Some of the moves, yeah, that was in, that was insane. That was insane, and and some of the moves you're seeing here from Atani as well, they're, they're really stiff. They're, it's, you know, Japanese wrestling is famous for being that way, isn't it? But you see some of these moves, like that power bomb you explained there, and, and uh, some of the arm drags by Atani as well. I mean, there's one where he does an arm drag but takes Guerrero over the top of his head rather than across the side of his body, and uh, just absolutely superb stuff. And you're right, it's probably just a smidge under the opener in terms of quality, but it's still well worth 13 minutes of your time, isn't it? Absolutely. And Otami is suffering a, bro- a busted nose, um, made it even more brutal, didn't it? With the blood and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much. I mean, uh, have you ever broke your nose, Danny? Have you ever had, you know, no, no, I've seen somebody break their nose in the street with, uh, by being punched by a drunk person, but never have you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had a broken nose and it's, it's difficult. You know, I can't understand how sometimes when, when these guys break their noses in wrestling matches and, or even other sporting events, sporting contests or whatever. And they carry on because your eyes are streaming straight away. Your eyes are streaming. So you can't see, you can't breathe properly. And then, and then that's all on top of the fact that it bloody hurts, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm utmost respect for anyone who can just, you know, carry on with something like that. Yeah, definitely. And then um, the finish uh, was quite exciting as well. Cause you didn't know who was going to win. And I've made a note here saying Eddie Grail looks strong, even in defeat. He still looked very, very strong. Yeah, and I think that's something that is really, really important. And I'm, I'm, that's that's great that you brought it up and, and great that you pointed this out, Danny. WCW so far, we've kind of had a running thing, haven't we, where quite often the finish of the match can be a bit messy. They're, they're, they're not great at their finishes up to this point. But here, it's the exact opposite. It's a really cleverly done finish. You know, they're, they're, they're effectively in a sunset flip stroke roll up position, trading back and forth, back and forth before one of them finally manages to hold down for the three, as opposed to countering for, for a two counter game. And, you know, Atani wins the match, as Danny said. But yet, Guerrero comes out still looking strong and still looking like a competitor because obviously they got very high hopes for him. Whereas in other matches on this show and, and, other shows that we've already reviewed for, for Nitro Nights. Sometimes the finish kind of lets the match down, I think, in the past. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's very interesting that both um, Chris Benoit and Eddie Grow, even though they lost on this night, they did look very, very strong and they look like the future stars of the company, especially with the uh, commentary putting them both over. Yeah, I think that's really important as well when you hear when you hear like something like Dusty Rhodes, because they introduced Dusty Rhodes as the former three-time world champion. And he's, obviously he's well-known, you know, especially in those circles. And to have him endorse you live on a pay-per-view, I think makes a big difference, especially when you're new to the company and relatively new to, new to American eyes, I suppose, via WCW television. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very smart of them. I forgot to say this in the opener. I was, um, 
them bringing him back for Starker. I mean, he was Mr. Starker along with Ric Flair. It's like um, if you bring Shawn Michaels in for a commentary spot at WrestleMania, which they did a couple of years ago, um, it just makes sense to have him there. Mm, yeah, yeah, good shape, good shape. Um, we then get another interview with Mean Gene, and this time it's with our world champion, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, who looks like 1995 has thrown up on him. It, 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 this is one colourful get-up this guy is wearing. But because it's Savage, I think he kind of pulls it off, so we'll, we'll let him get away with it. Um, it's another interview similar to the Sting one that I've got no idea what's going on. The only thing I got from this was me and Gene spoke to Hulk Hogan on the phone just before this interview, and it just enraged me because... Hulk Hogan had to call into the in kayfabe Hulk Hogan had to call into the show because he he was obviously suspended still but he couldn't just let Macho Man have one night without Hulk Hogan sticking his oar in he wanted to know what kind of mood Savage was in didn't he is Hulk Hogan a stalker yeah maybe that's it (laughs) maybe that's it he's just you know just a yellow bandana turning up every now and again peeking over the hedge at Macho Man's like front garden you know (laughs) <laughs> I think I think he is because I've known um, stalkers and things like that, and he. This is very similar to, to how like someone would harass somebody in direct co- um, contact and things like that. It's just crazy how Hulk Hogan's perceived yeah. as a babyface. I mean, he's he's effectively been banned from the, from the arena because he's suspended. So his his behaviour and his actions surrounding the world championship, which Savage holds, has led to him being suspended. And now he's ringing up just to see how he is. Yeah, I think you're onto something there, mate. Hulk Hogan's a crazy stalker, and Savage wants to get out of there fast. <laughs> Definitely, I think Savage should go back to the WWF. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, but Hogan will just follow him. <laughs> oh yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, I love you, Randy. Um, <laughs> anyway, 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 Savage is wrestling Tenzan next up. And Tenzan, I suppose, is the Japanese equivalent of Randy Savage's ring gear because he is multicolorful as well. Uh, various rainbow colors listing down his tights with the glorious side shaved mullet that he sports as well. That is a fantastic look. I reckon you should go for that, Danny. You should grow a Tenzan mullet. I wish I could. I don't know if I can or not. <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of brawling. It's a lot of scrapping. Uh, Tenzai gets a sort of Chris Benoit, Harley Race-esque headbutt off the top rope, but misses a moonsault. Um, again, it's it's a bit of an odd one. I suppose similar in a way to some of the matches we've already seen. Johnny B. Bad versus Saito one, for example. In that, this is only five, six minutes long. Same as Saito. And it's almost like the two styles don't quite mesh. They're they're just just off a step. But if they were given a few more minutes, maybe we would have got somewhere with this. But the match seems to be... It almost feels like, okay, get it in the ring, get it done, get them out, because we've got to move on to something else. Yeah, I I definitely can see that. There was a lot of fight, quite a bit of fighting outside as well, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, Savage wins with his top rope elbow drop. It looks like Tenzan t- tries to get a foot up at one stage, but Savage still hits it and pins him. So that I thought that was quite good because it you know, adds a little bit of realism to the finish there. And that levels the whole thing up, doesn't it? The World Cup of Wrestling. We're now at three each with one match left. Who would have predicted it would happen like that, eh? Wow, I couldn't, can't believe it. I was sat there stunned. <laughs> but going back to the when he... Um, 
put when Tenza put the leg up, um, that was very interesting as well because that's something I haven't seen too much of. Mm. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I mean, you got to think. T- to me, it's all about realism. I like professional wrestling that takes me out of where I am, and you know, I can sort of get engulfed in it. And I don't. I appreciate, especially nowadays, when you see certain. Uh, certain wrestlers, certain matches, certain companies, and it's a lot of flips and flying around. I, I love watching that style. It's entertaining, but it doesn't look like a fight. I want it to look like a fight. Now, if you if somebody gets knocked off their feet, I mean, Randy Savage doesn't take a long time to get up the ropes, but it's long enough that if somebody's knocked off their feet for them to do something about it. So you're, you've got to suspend your disbelief in that his opponent has to lie there motionless while Savage climbs to the top rope, takes the time to do his pointy to the ceiling thing he does, and then jump off and hit the top rope armor. So the fact that Tenzan is getting his leg up, almost like he's trying to block it, but he doesn't quite block it enough, and Savage hits the elbow anyway. I think that's a really clever little touch. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's really good um, finish as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we get some absolute gold from Bobby Heenan here then, don't we? This is so good. We go back to the commentary table to just discuss what's going on, discuss you know what's coming up on the rest of the show. Just a little break, I suppose, to catch up with Tony Schiavone and, and so on. Bobby Heenan's sat facing the wrong direction, first of all. He's not turned around with his commentary partners to look at the camera. When he's tapped on the shoulder by Tony Schiavone to do this, he, he tries to turn around, gets himself tangled up in a cable, knocks his chair over, and just ends up in an absolute mess. And you have <laughs> Dusty is just creasing up at this. It's obvious that Heenan's doing this off his own back. They, these guys didn't know this was happening. And this is worth looking at. If anyone if anyone can't remember Bobby Heenan because they're too young or they've never seen certain moments with him or whatever, go and check this out. This guy is just comedy gold. He, he's got everyone laughing. And then they cut to Mean Gene because he's going to interview Ric Flair. And Gene's cracking up as well just because Heenan was just... Oh, it, it was it was brilliant, Danny, wasn't it? It really was. It was very reminiscent of um, WWF Primetime, uh, that 80s show, which was um, Bobby Heenan just just making a fool of himself, but doing it in such a way that you just can't stop watching. Yeah, exactly, mate, exactly. Uh, the Flair promo is typical Flair. He, he's shouty, he's ranty. He says what you want to hear to be the man, you've got to beat the man and so on. He's talking about winning the world championship. He's saying that Savage and uh, Savage, Sting and Luger have all wrestled already tonight. Uh, well, Sting will have after this next contest, sorry. Whereas he's a, he's fresh going into the triangle match and so on. So, yeah, really uh, uh, just a standard Ric Flair promo, which you know I'm perfectly okay with. That's exactly what I wrote down. It says standard Flair instead of standard Fair. <laughs> 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 yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, our next match does feature Sting, and it is Sting versus the aforementioned Kenzuki Sasaki, who is the United States champion. As the World Cup of Wrestling stands at three matches each between WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, first thing I noted, Dane, was as Sasaki comes out, Sonny Ono is there, obviously, and he's carrying the United States title above his head. How bloody amazing did that US title look? Oh, it's really good. I mean, I know we've talked about it before. Um, my only, my favourite is the WWE US title, but there's no denying that this was the better belt. And so shiny as well. They probably they really polished this up because when the lights hit it, it was like a bloody disco coming off that gold, wasn't it? 
It was, yeah. And um, I was very excited to see this rematch that we'd seen. But, like, this just felt big time. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And we get our first look at the actual cup, the actual World Cup of wrestling, which is a funny one for me because we've had, this is our seventh match. We've had a couple of hours of the pay-per-view now. And this is the first occasion we're seeing the actual trophy. And we don't even see it properly then. The camera just scans past it whilst it's following Sting as he makes his entrance. We don't see the trophy itself properly. And I think that's really odd. I mean, if that was um, a football match or even a WWE event, they would have the camera on that trophy saying, this is what we're competing for right from the start of the show. You know? Yeah. So what, I, don't, I don't understand WWE's motivations there. Yeah, it kind of like that's a great point because when you see the King of the Ring, you normally see the um, the chair, the throne, and things like that first. Um, that's such a really good point. Presentation is key, kind of lacking there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, just an odd decision for me. Really strange decision, but there we go. This is WCW. I suppose we get quite a few of those. Uh, we get, um, I, I suppose, again, a decent wrestling match. It's not. It's not the best. It's not the worst. Um, we get um, Sting throws some incredible drop kicks early on. Suzaki hits an um, incredible snap power slam, almost Randy Orton esque when they come off the ropes and you just snap them round. Absolutely superb. And then follows it up with one of the shittest arm bars I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that was very odd. But I did write down um, Sting has an amazing fiery comeback. Yeah. Oh. Again, this is what makes him such a good babyface, isn't it? Is is fighting from from underneath. Is 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 coming back. Is superb. We get some great arm drags, um, and then eventually Sasaki applies a Scorpion Deathlock on Sting, and it looks great as well. It, it looks, you know, uh, I got a big thing about moves looking legit and looking like they should. I mean, we mentioned John Cena's STF earlier in comparison to the STF we saw on this show. The Scorpion Deathlock, or Sharpshooter, if, if you prefer. To me, Bret Hart does it amazing, obviously. Owen Hart does it amazingly. Uh, we have um, Suzuki here doing it really, really well. Sting does it. Quite often, it looks good. Sometimes it looks a bit loose. I hate the way The Rock does a Sharpshooter. I can't stand it. I knew you was going to go this. <laughs> I mean, there's certain ones, there's certain ones. He applies it on Austin in one of the WrestleMania matches. And I think if Austin sneezed, The Rock would fall out of the hold. It looks that bad. It does, doesn't it? I, I believe he was called out on Twitter a couple of years ago for it. Um, oh, how, really? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it was that. It was something that I'll have to look out. But yeah, um, I'm with you with the sharpshooter. It has to look legit. Um, have you ever been in the sharpshooter side? When I was younger, yeah, you know the whole "don't try this at home" thing that everyone blatantly ignored. Yeah, I, I, one of my friends put me in a sharpshooter. It's not comfortable. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, my brother did that to me uh, years when we was little as well. And the pain you feel in your stomach and legs, all to and your back all together is just like oh. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of my favourites, to be honest. One of my favourite submission holds. Uh, I mean, to me, wrestling is wrestling is exactly that. It's wrestling. It should be hold for hold, and you know, wrestling. Whereas some places now seem to take wrestling as being, you know, there are certain match, certain wrestling matches, and I'm using the air quotes here. Certain wrestling matches where you don't need a ring because they spend all their time in the air, which is fine. And again, you know, horses for courses. Everyone everyone likes different things. I'm not a big WWE fan. 
but I know people who love WWE. Uh, just different stuff all over. And my, my little girl loves more of the aerial style of wrestling to in comparison to what I enjoy. But to me, the to me the name on the poster, the description on the poster, the the the, the sign on the on the arena says wrestling, so it should be wrestling. So wrestling holds to me are very very important so when i see a good submission hold such as this i get a big kick out of it i think i think when these are done right then that's how wrestling should be done yeah absolutely especially when it looks painful even something like the cross face or something like that just uh, it just adds the believability factor yeah yeah we get another little uh dusty and heenan mocking tony Schiavone moment here Um, was it a, a leg leg drag takedown Shivani referred to something else i think it was that but all i wrote down is i'm glad mike today wasn't on the call for this because they would have eaten him alive <laughs> well yeah i mean there, there is moments in wcw in the future where that sort of thing does happen with today um so we'll have to keep an eye out for that but yeah it's it, it's basically a, a russian oh how do you call what do you call it? a dragon leg screw is that what you call it you get a lot of them in in New Japan, Naito uses them a lot and so on. Um, but uh, Shivani refers to it as a, a leg drag takedown. And Heenan and Dusty at this stage are just full on laughing at him now. They're not even trying to wind him up. They're just literally just laughing in his face. You have to love that guaranteed money, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, speaking of good submission holds, that's ultimately how the match ends. Sting applies the Scorpion Deathlock himself and wins via submission. Team WCW all compiling out, or Team USA, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, mean Gene is there for the cup presentation. The cup is a big old size. I mean, this is probably as big as Gene. It's a big old cup. Um, but it looks like it needs a bit of a wipe. It looks, it doesn't look very clean. It's like, just give it a bit of a polish lads. Do you know what I mean? It does, doesn't it? Um, sorry, that bloody, that as big as Gene got me there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does look, it, I wrote down, it does look super generic as well. It was like, that could have been an 11 year old's um, football tournament trophy or something like that. It wasn't yeah. really like, it didn't really have anything that specified it maybe that's why they didn't show it on camera before yeah maybe maybe perhaps they they ordered this trophy and it arrived and they're all about promoting this trophy and then when it arrived they were like mm, it's a bit shit in it <laughs> so they just avoided showing it on telly <laughs> i think that's exactly what happened because maybe on um nitro uh next week they'll have um a new trophy and they'll pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah. We're never going to see this again. <laughs> How WCW operates. They promoted this world cup of wrestling for weeks and weeks, made it all about it on the pay-per-view, this huge, you know, uh, sudden death decider for this trophy, massive trophy presentation. That, they'll probably never mention it again. <laughs> That'll be that. <laughs> that does sound like WCW to be fair. <laughs> yep. Well, to be fair, Mean Gene does say he's really enjoyed the World Cup of Wrestling and he hopes it becomes an annual event. I've looked it up. It does never happen again. So, <laughs> Oh, I actually, I actually was hoping that as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. They just need to give it a bit of a polish, don't they? I mean, whoever looked after, maybe it was Sonny Ono. Perhaps Sonny Ono was the one who cleaned the United States title. Perhaps I should have let him have a go at the trophy. Just be like, hey, Sonny, come give this a wipe over, will you? And see what actually- happens. <laughs> They might have thought he would have stole it and sold it on a future eBay store. 
Well, maybe, yeah. Sonny Ono's trophies was .com or something. <laughs> oh, it's very on brand. Um, he does that now, doesn't he? He makes fake merchandise and sells it on eBay and Amazon and things like that. Does he really? Yeah, yeah, he's making uh, W shirts and um, uh, things like that. Just and just sells it on. Um, so I'm not. Sh- I won't be shocked if this ends up on eBay at some point. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to go and try and find Sonny Ono's merch store now and see what dodgy crap you know like NWO t-shirts that spelt wrong or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to see if I can buy the World Cup of wrestling. You know, oh, that even, would look amazing. <laughs> see if we can find it, Danny. Let's see if we can find it. <laughs> uh, speaking of merch, actually, before we get on to our our final couple of matches involving the World Championship, uh, it, Arn Anderson announced today that he's actually got hold of and now owns the copyright or the trademark for the Four Horsemen. So he's going to reproduce via Boxer Gimmicks, which I believe is Conrad Thompson's merch thing for his podcast. They're going to reproduce some classic old school horseman merchandise. I am all about that. That is awesome. Well, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Um, If somebody had to own the Four Horsemen uh, merchandise, I'd rather it be in the hands of the Enforcer than Ric Flair at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I just assumed because it's kind of... Um, obviously, I, I assumed qu- quite wrongly, but I, for some reason, I just assumed because it's a form of intellectual property, and it, it, you know WCW going the way it did. I just assumed Vince would own it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, actually, now you say that, that's actually maybe they let it go for some mm. reason. But that yeah. is actually because um, I think it was the mid two thousands. They had a Four Horsemen DVD, and it was it was like who owned the rights to that? I'm sure it was WWE. So maybe they did let go of that. But that's really uh, exciting information. So yeah, I mean, like I, said, I read it literally just before I sat down with you. So the details I'm not totally clued up on, but I'm really interested in seeing what they produce. I've got a Horseman T-shirt. Uh, which I really, really love. I love my Horseman T-shirt, but I want one of the Enforcer jackets. I want one of the. Uh, there's, there's quite a famous picture with the Lex Luger incarnation of the Four Horsemen. So it's Luger, Arn. I think it's Arn, Tully, and Flair, um, and they're all sat basically looking like models from a from a uh, an Argos catalog or something like that. And they're all sat there in in um, <laughs> Four Horsemen sweatshirts, the grey sweatshirts. And it's just so 80s and so cheap. And they're all sat there smiling, like, you know, posing for this picture. And if you can find it, I, I, I will track it down and I'll, I'll tweet it out there and I'll send it to you as well, Danny. Lex Luger looks so happy. He just looks like he's the he's he's just like made it in his head. He's just like the happiest man on earth, modeling a <laughs> a four horseman nineteen eighties sweat top in this catalogue. Oh, he just looks so happy. It's brilliant. I really want to see that now, especially if Lex, knowing the facial expressions of Lex Luger. Um, I really want to see that. <laughs> I will track it down and I will put it out on the show's Twitter and I'll also uh, send it over to you as well, Danny. Yeah, it, I, I, I imagine you've seen it before, but when you see it, it is it is quite funny. Look at the facial expressions across all the guys that are trying to model these. Now, bear in mind, they're a big heel faction and here they are modelling their, their sweatshirts in a catalogue. <laughs> that, that's a very interesting point. It's like heels having merchandise in the 80s and 90s um i'm not too familiar with it because in the 2000s heels had t-shirts everywhere didn't they even now heels have t-shirts everywhere and it's like isn't that defeating the purpose of the the object of the purpose sorry um 
Yeah. And what do you think about heels having merchandise? Um, I've got no issues with it because, I mean, ultimately, the big thing that I look at is the NWO. Now, the NWO, when we see them arrive in, in a few months' time, they're supposed to be the heels. But they end up being this really cool group and everyone had their merchandise. And the same with Austin. Austin, you know, he's, he's effectively a heel, but people cheered for him. And the Austin 316 shirt, it was a big seller as well. And I, I like, I mean, I was looking at an MJF t-shirt the other day. I like the bad guys, you know, and ever since I was a kid, I like the bad I mean, Shawn Michaels, as I mentioned, God knows how many times is my favorite wrestler. I remember being happy when he kicked Marty Gennetti in the face and threw him through the bar shot window. So even, even Shawn Michaels in, you know, 92 mid card with Sherry as a heel, I thought was cool. So, you know, Flair as a heel. I've always liked the heels, even when I was little. My mum used to say it was weird because all my mates cheered for the good guys and I was I was into the bad guys, but whatever. And um, so from my standpoint, even as a kid, yeah, I wanted heel merchandise, you know, but I suppose I don't see there's any issue with it being available, but I just imagine, especially in the kayfabe days of the 70s, 80s and so on, if there was merch available for baby faces and heels, I'd imagine due to the nature of it being still kayfabe, the heel merch not selling well. Yeah, I, I can see that as well. I mean, um, I, I'm kind of the same, but it's like I ask myself that and then I say, would fans want a Muhammad Hassan t-shirt? Because that was a, a heel, oh. wasn't it? And or like I try to look at like the most vicious heels of like the 2000s, like even someone like Mordecai. Um, would fans be clamoring for merchandise? And the answer is really no, but um, it's interesting. It's a very interesting point. But deep down, you want a Mordecai t-shirt, don't you? Oh, yes, many times <laughs> over. <laughs> that that's, symbol. That's something else we'll have to look at. I, I'll tell you what, that'd be really interesting as a podcast. Maybe we should sit down and do it as a separate show one day uh, under the SJP banner or something potentially and just look at, obscure wrestling merch so like a mordecai t-shirt and see if Mohammed hassan has got any merch out there i think he's got an action figure you know i'm fairly certain there's an action figure oh yeah i've got it in a suit one of the suitcases of full of oh. wrestling figures <laughs> well let's see that again there you go that's something else we need to do one day you get those suitcases out and we'll go through them and and, and stuff I, I can't wait to see what you got in there i bet there's some really really random figures in there absolutely uh, but there we go. We have been sidetracked once again. Uh, we were talking Lex Luger or Smiley in his sweatshirt. Here is Lex Luger, less Smiley, I suppose, as he comes to the ring for the triangle match, as they referred to it as. Now, I had no idea at all that this was how this match was going to work. In my head, this was a bog standard triple threat match. All three guys in the ring at once. And I was bloody excited to watch this match. This is, you know, WCW, NWA, Jim Crockett promotions all over it. Luger, Sting, Flair. And I'm thinking this is going to be bloody fantastic. And then I'm told they got to toss a coin to decide who starts the match. Because some, some other mug, I mean, basically Luger in this scenario, has to just stand in the corner and tag in and out. And I'm thinking, what is this bollocks? Because, you know, why would you ever want to tag out? Because you can't win. It makes no sense. And they put this crap on for 28 minutes of the pay-per-view. 28 minutes. Good God almighty. It was, it was, um, it was hard to get through. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, I sent you a message. Uh, didn't I Danny earlier on 
as I was just finishing up the pay-per-view before we started recording. And it, it, the, the message via WhatsApp that I sent Danny for everyone listening, it literally just said, good God, this triangle match is long. We have about 20 O's in it. It's just, oh, it's just so, and I'll be honest with you as well. Okay. And this is really bad for me to say, because I never do this because I try and take anything I do podcast wise. I try and take it as seriously as I can you know with regards to research and, and making my notes and being prepared for the shows and so on i feel if people are taking the time to listen to stuff that that we're making i should take the time to get my my sort of background information as accurate as i possibly can i ended up skipping part of this match i ended up bringing up the little button at the bottom of the network and doing the sort of 10 second jump and sk- skipping and skipping and seeing where we are, skipping and skipping and seeing where we are. And then I had a, a minute or two looking at my phone uh, whilst the match was on. And it, it's just, it was so long. It, and I mean, Perhaps that's misleading. Perhaps that's misleading. I, I, I'll, re, I'll re, readdress that. Long wrestling matches aren't a problem. I mean, I used, I've watched Flair go 60 minutes with... Luger, I've watched Flair go 45 minutes with Sting, and you know, we've watched you know Okada Omega matches that go however long, and you know, long wrestling matches to me are not an issue. And when people go, Oh, I don't like watching long wrestling matches, I, I find that quite a difficult, quite a difficult comment to understand because in my mind, I'm thinking, No, you just haven't found a long wrestling match you like because you know, there are some long wrestling matches that really drag and are no good then there are other long wrestling matches that are fantastic in the same way that you can have a five minute match that's amazing or a five minute match that sucks it's not necessarily the length of the match to me it's more the pacing and what they do with their time but sadly the pacing of this match is just slow isn't it it really was um it was uh, as you said it's all about the pace and the story i mean um a lot of people uh quite recently have uh, crit- started criti- criticizing um Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12 and um it was like a, a lot of t- a lot of years that was getting praised that was on a lot of dvds and things like that but when you actually go back and watch it um to me i i find it entertaining but a lot of people say it was too slow um long wrestling matches yeah as you're right it just takes the right amount of chemistry and uh, to me watching this triple threat it was like we've seen this so much we've seen so many matches with these three already i think it was hard for them to tell a new story yeah it's just i mean okay the fact that i i I did skip chunks of it in, in 10 second intervals and i was on my phone for a minute or two would probably dictate towards me having less notes than normal. But I also think I've got less notes than normal just because not a lot goes on. I mean, it's, yeah. It's very punchy kicky. I know that's a phrase that we, you know, perhaps we should chuck that on a t-shirt. I don't know, but it's very punchy kicky. And I mean, ultimately Luger with a right dancing partner can be entertaining. We all love sting. And to me, Ric Flair is is one of the top two guys to ever lace up a pair of boots. So the talent in this match, it's not like we're we're watching three awful wrestlers here. There's there's three very very talented individuals in this match, and triple threat matches aren't something that go back decades and decades and decades into the sixties, seventies, or whatever. Triple threat matches or the three way dance, as ECW used to refer to it as, is predominantly a nineties thing. It kind of came around in the nineties. 
via ECW were very, very, very up and big in, in that kind of promoting that we, you had others in history as well, of course, but when it became a big deal and you saw them on quite a regular basis, but it's not even like the fact that these guys wouldn't have really been in a triple threat or three-way match very often before because they're wrestling one-on-one because you've got some get on the outside who has to tag in. It just makes no sense. <laughs> No, you're completely right. So, I mean, it just it's like, why would they take up? <laughs> oh. I, I can't understand the logic. But, I mean, it's something that, um, as as wacky as this ruling is, you'd never see this in the WWF. No, no. I mean, I suppose the closest you get to it is when you get those multi-team matches for the tag titles. You know, I think WrestleMania 18 was the one where they tried to get all the tag teams on the show so both oh. sets of titles were defended in like four corner tags and WrestleMania you know, 20 WrestleMania 20 okay yeah and it's everyone's tagging in and out and so on uh i'm not a massive fan of that concept either to be fair but again similar to, i suppose to to the the length of matches it depends who you're watching as to how entertaining it can be when we had the likes of um i suppose Edge and Rey Mysterio, Benoit and Angle, and all these teams, and you know, uh, the Guerreros, and they were all working those kind of matches. They were superb. But then when you've got the likes of, say, Billy and Chuck and a few others working that concept at WrestleMania 18, the match isn't quite as good. So maybe it's not the concept. Maybe it's who I see in the concept, similar to the length of matches we were talking earlier. I don't know. I don't know. No, I would say that's right as well. It's it's about who's in the match. Even with me, it's like, yeah, just I'd rather... Like, it doesn't matter how what match it is, as long as the right characters are there and the mm. pacing is right. I'm interested. Apart from a last man standing match, because that just bores the piss out of me. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> uh, in this one, like I said, it's very punchy, kicky. Uh, Sting and Flair start the match. Um, Ric Flair's gear doesn't match as well. I know this is quite a petty thing, but it pisses me off. His knee pads, his trunks, and his boots are all different colours. And that's not Flair to me. Flair's always matching gear, matching robe, looks great. Here it looks like he's... It almost tells, gives me the impression that he's not that bothered. Now, I know that's not the case, of course, because he wrestles here for... I mean, this 28-minute sort of... I, I don't know what you call it, 28-minute triangle match... Flair's in the ring for a massive chunk of it. And, you know, spoiler alert, people, he goes on to win this and then wrestle Savage in a few moments as well. So it's obviously, you know, I'm trying, me saying he doesn't care is not right, but I, I, I can't really explain what I mean. When Flair's gear doesn't match, it just doesn't look, I suppose it's like if you go to a restaurant and, and, and the guy bringing you your food had his shirt untucked and his tie undone, you'd be a bit like, oh, all right, mate. That's how I felt here with Flair. Does that make sense? It does. It really, it makes sense. It would be like if Rey Mysterio turned up and he didn't have his mask on or something like that. It would be, it's just like, you're so used to seeing um, them looking their best. And when they've got like, there was, um, oh, there was an article it was ages ago. It was something like um, uh, showing that wrestlers wear different attires that don't look as good on house shows. And they, you, you, someone like Rob Van Dam would wear like a, less colourful attire in a house show than to me this this Ric Flair um attire looked like a house show attire. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, I'm trying to think of points to bring up about this match. The fact that we've already told you who wins to those listening at home. The fact that Danny and I have already said who wins and we're spending so much time talking about 
the match concept and the fact that Flair's gear doesn't match probably tells you a story in itself without us having to break down too much of the contest you know itself there the match itself i mean we do get a pretty cool superplex um at one stage luger eventually tags in and starts battling with sting which is quite interesting because of what's been going on in recent weeks but even that felt flat because it's a long show this maybe not in time because time-wise, it's still a standard pay-per-view length, but it, it felt a long show because there was a lot going on. So by the time you get Sting and Luger in the ring together, after the week's build-up of uh, what's going on, who's going to turn on who, are they friends, are they not? There's no real big crowd reaction to that, which I felt was a real shame. Yeah, I, I would say that as well. It was I, I think maybe the fans were just tired of this as well because this storyline had been gone on quite a while, but... Um, after this, I was just hoping, I hope this is the end of it. And the one thing that did annoy me, that there was a ref bump in this match. And I was thinking, oh, really? It started here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's not something we've seen on this show yet. I mean, this is, what would this be? This would be our eighth match of the night. And we've got a ref bump here. So on that aspect, maybe that's a positive to take. We haven't had the ref bump overused. Yeah, that. but that's what I wrote down. It was like a ref bump. Um, I'm just hoping it's not going to be on every pay-per-view because I was right. hoping when I was watching this, I was like, oh, they, they, they can't have started ref bumps this early, could they? But no, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else I noticed as well. Did you pick up maybe one or two boos for Sting here? Yeah, they were definitely there for um, Flair. But mainly mm. they were there for Lex Luger. Yeah, Luger was the one that I really noticed. When Flair tagged out and Sting got in, there was not much of a reaction. And then when they were trading back and forth moves, when Sting was kind of getting the advantage, I wouldn't say he was openly booed, because that's not true. There's lots of people there cheering for Sting, of course. But there was a bit more of a negative sound to the overall you know noise i was hearing then when luger was on the offensive luger was was, was over here they would they really wanted lex luger to win this i think yeah you could definitely tell that especially from the ovation earlier in his earlier match um mm. i think this this should have been lex luger's night yeah potentially potentially uh eventually we get, as as danny explained we get a ref bump because lex luger has put the the rack on sting and Sting's foot clobbers the referee, and he takes quite a theatrical over-the-top fall into the ropes. Flair then comes in and chop-blocks Luger from behind, which ends up with Sting falling out of the ring and bundling to the floor. When, <laughs> well, the, the, Effectively, Luger and Sting end up on the outside here after they've been brawling for a bit and thrown on the outside. The referee comes around, and this is something else that absolutely baffles the crap out of me. This match you've had for 28 minutes, it's one of the biggest selling points of your whole pay-per-view and is all about your World Heavyweight title. And it's three of the biggest names you've got in your company. Ends on a count-out. A double count-out at that. Yeah, it just seemed really odd. I mean, I suppose you get the aspect of neither Lex nor Sting had to take the pinfall, so I can appreciate that. That would make sense from that standpoint because that their story is still going ahead, and I'm enjoying where this is going. The Sting Luger stuff, I quite enjoy that. 
but I suppose you also get the aspect of on the outside, Sting at nine is almost back in the ring, but Luger pulls him down. So you get the, okay, well, what's going on there then? I thought they were mates and why is this happening and, and so on. But ultimately, a count out on the longest match of the night and one with the three biggest names in, in it, it just, again, it just added to me thinking, oh, this could have been done so much better. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think you're right. That is a positive. Lex Luger costing Sting by holding onto his arm. It was like that sets up something uh, for the future because it's like, oh, yeah, now on that show, we've got to tune in and see what Sting's reaction is to that. And maybe Lex Luger was in cahoots with Ric Flair all along. Well, maybe. Maybe. Somebody who wants to be in cahoots with Ric Flair, however, is our old friend Jimmy Hart. He obviously didn't get enough camera time because Lex told him to stay at the back. So he's decided he's going to come out and uh, be in Ric Flair's corner all of a sudden, which I'm not too sure how Luger is going to react to that because Hart was telling him, you have to bring the gold home. Whereas Flair's won this match and going into the main event against Randy Savage momentarily, Jimmy Hart's come out and decided he's backing Flair now. So that's an interesting an interesting little swerve to what's going on there, Danny. Yeah, that is. That's uh, It's like, are you accusing Jimmy Hart of just switching up for managing managing roles are you well he, he kept getting referred to as a little snake on commentary didn't he from tony Schiavone and bobby heenan and so on so maybe this plays very much into that role of him being a little snake who knows <laughs> uh, it seems logical but yeah um it seems like he's just dropped lex luger like a bad habit yeah again though it makes you think i want to watch nitro to see where this goes so whereas the match itself kind of sucked and a lot about that match to finish everything about it kind of sucked. We've actually got two points from it that make you think, okay, well, what's going to happen next? So that's that to me is a good thing. And that's the goal of um, pay-per-views, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Buffer has turned up to earn his ridiculous amount of money for his you know 90 seconds work. Fair play to the guy. Good work if you can get it. And he five, grand, si. five, five grand, Five grand. Just to take hell. a first-class... I mean, he, he described it on Twitter a couple of years ago. He got a first-class airfare, five grand, to just say a couple of words on Nitro and then just fly back first-class. Absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. But it does it does give you that big match feel when he's there, doesn't it, to sort of introduce things, I suppose. Um, Flair is described here by Buffer as the master of the figure four. I mean, I think maybe he's the master of putting it on, but he doesn't use it to win very often, let's be honest. <laughs> no, he doesn't. But after the, the introductions are made, we have our main event, which is the, I suppose, another throwback to the main event of WrestleMania 8, or one of the main events of WrestleMania 8, with Ric Flair challenging Randy Savage for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. One of the first things I noticed about this match, Danny, is the punches being thrown by both. Now, I use the term punchy-kicky sometimes in a derogatory way, as in I want to see wrestling, but if it's a lot of punches, a lot of kicks, it's almost to me like, oh, come on, you can do better than that. These guys here start the match, and it is quite punchy-punchy, but there's a big difference. Savage is throwing some right hands and then a left-hand jab, and Flair is throwing his punches, and they really look good. There's a snap to them. There's a pop to the punch. The timing is perfect. The way Flair and Savage are selling their opponents' punches is perfect. I thought this was a really good start to the match, Danny. What did you think? Yeah, it was very... Um, the crowd was into it as well, weren't they? Like, the way they was just kept, like... It was kind of, like, going back and forth. 
um, that you bringing up that they invented WrestleMania eight. It did. Um, it made me think: Has a match ever main evented a Starcade and a WrestleMania apart from this? Oh, Streif. Um, I suppose you could argue Hogan and Piper. WrestleMania one was the tag, but they had a Starcade match, which was a singles contest. Yeah, that's um, actually a good point. Yeah, uh, but but. I th- I was I was thinking that and I was like wow imagine just like I, it always goes back to that thing I keep saying and I will keep saying this Vince McMahon thought Randy Savage was done in the ring and here he is main eventing WWE's biggest show of the year it just blows my mind and it, it just makes me happy to see him yeah and he's doing it with a, a quite serious injury as well let's not forget i mean we mentioned it quite a bit on previous nitros but we've not bought at once here so to give to give randy savage his his dues he's wrestling here with a very very serious arm injury he's heavily taped up he's he's carried he won the world championship at world war three with a bad arm he's carried the world title for the last month uh, and he's wrestling here in the main event of Starcade, still with that same injury that's that that's spectacular to me yeah, it definitely is. And it plays into the match with Ric Flair working on Macho Man's arm, which is, um, yeah, is always good to see as well. Yeah, it makes sense. They're telling a story. They're telling a story. Uh, and like you said, Flair does work the arm a great deal. We got some great heel wrestling here where Flair applies an arm bar and is using the ropes behind the referee's back to get extra leverage and so on. That's always brilliant. Uh, Paul Orndorff turns up as well, just kind of stands in the aisleway with his neck brace on. We haven't seen him since the horseman li- just just tore him apart, basically, <laughs> like a pack of dogs and just ripped ripped Paul Orndorff to shreds and pile-drived him on the concrete floor. He eventually gets led away by security. Uh, we get a pretty cool axe handle off the top rope to the outside from Savage. And, I mean, you forget sometimes how big a distance that is from that top rope all the way down. So that's always quite cool to see. Jimmy Hart inserts himself into the match a few times here he kicks randy savage at one stage and he's just an irritating little git and i suppose i suppose that means he's doing his job i guess yeah it, it really does um it was like with paul Andorf coming out um that means that when we go when we watch nitro i wonder what he's going to do yeah again another uh Another, I wonder what's going to happen moment. WCW, for all the times we criticize certain things that they do, there are moments on this pay-per-view that really make you think, oh, okay, what's coming next? Which I think, you know, which is great. It's the it's, it's well-written television. It makes you want to tune in the following week, doesn't it, I suppose? Um, we get Jimmy Hart distracting the ref whilst he throws the megaphone into the ring. I mean, it's obviously for Flair to use on Savage, but Savage gets hold of it and... I, I was going to say he hits Flair, but I don't think that's quite accurate. He kind of tickles Flair's head with it, he, he, or he, he gently places the megaphone on Ric Flair's fringe, I guess. And Flair <laughs> drops like he's been shot, doesn't he, Danny? Oh, yeah, he does. Uh, that's just typical Flair, just overselling there. But um, I was shocked that Ric Flair uh, bled during this match as well. See, part of me was because it was you know, the clock on the corner was telling me how long was left of the pay-per-view and how long was left of the match. And this is literally the finish of the match. So then the finish of the pay-per-view. So we've got literally you know, minutes left. And then all of a sudden, Flair's just, you know, 
there's a gusher, isn't there, from his forehead. And it's from the, the megaphone shot, in theory. But it just it didn't look great because the megaphone shot was so soft. It, I mean, it's got to be seen to be believed how, how soft and timid. I mean, Randy Savage is trying to look after his opponent, which is a good thing. We should never chastise wrestlers for that. But it didn't look very good. And then Flair is just gushing blood everywhere. It's it's quite insane. And we then get the arrival of the horsemen. After we mentioned them ripping Orndorff apart, we kind of get something similar here. The referee is distracted. The horsemen arrive. We have Pillman. We have Anderson. They're in there. They're attacking Savage. And pack of dogs, pack of wild dogs is a phrase that gets used quite a bit when you have factions run in and do something like this. The way the horsemen were and the way the horsemen are here i think that 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 description is so accurate for how they're how they're conducting their business so to speak what did you think of the finish overall then danny i thought it was really interesting um you bring up a good point there with um pack of dogs or pack of hyenas um because the horsemen just running out especially brian pillman coming out um and attacking macho man just plays right into the story Mm. and um the finish it, it did have me shocked because I didn't know Ric Flair won this. I I think I thought Macho Man held the belt at least an, another couple months, but um, it, it it had me just very interested in watching it. Sat here just like ah oh, Flair did it again. This is where he won his um team world title. Um, I was like ah oh, it was yeah. So I was I was a bit annoyed for Macho Man, but. It was ex- it was a really good match. Um, what did you think of it, sir? Yeah, overall, I mean, it, it went you know eight and a half minutes or so. The finish, I think, was good because it keeps Savage. It, Savage didn't have to take a clean pin, which is which is great. And I mean, it is a shame that he's already lost the title after a month. When that whole month, his his title reign was kind of under a big red and yellow cloud, shall we say? If if people know what I'm referring to there. But the actual losing of the title, and you got to remember Savage is injured as well. So I don't know if he's going to go away now and get, get himself patched up. or I'm not sure. I will have to see in the coming weeks. But the fact, that, the fact that Savage didn't take a clean pin and the fact that the Horseman aided Flair to win the championship, to me, is fantastic because Ric Flair is on top of the world again. And I'm a massive Flair fan, as, as I keep saying. But he's there with the Horseman protecting him and the world title. So this is, to me, that that's awesome. I love that. I'm all about that. And it's also great seeing a big high-profile pay-per-view and a high-profile pay-per-view main event without Hogan hanging around it. So overall, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed this. I mean, ultimately, the finish comes with Arn Anderson throwing flair. Well, no, he punches Savage, doesn't he, with, with um, Knuckle Duster, maybe, or he's got something in his hand and then drags Flair on top of Savage. So proper old-school horseman stuff, real, you know, way back in the in the Jim Crockett promotion days, proper classic horseman. I loved it, mate. Yeah, I can see that as well. I was um, I was just, as I was watching the finish, I was thinking, I bet Hulk Hogan's watching uh, this, just waiting in the wings for his match with Ric Flair. <laughs> so <laughs> now that Macho Man's out the way, um Hulk Hogan can be the ultimate good guy and come back and help his friend avenge. Yeah, I, I know where this goes with regards to the next pay-per-view. And all I can say is Scott Hall can't turn up fast enough. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So that concludes the pay-per-view, I guess. Well, it concludes the on-screen portion of the pay-per-view. Interestingly enough, after the show went off air, after Flair and Savage finished, in a dark match, the one-man gang won the WCW United States Championship from Kensuke Sasaki. So we have a new champion there. It's going to be good having the United States title back on WCW television on a more regular basis. It's just a bit of a shame that it's going to be done around the waist of the one-man gang. But never mind. At least the title's back. At least the title's back. No, that, that's very interesting. I found that you just saying that just blew my mind. Um, I know about dark matches after pay-per-views and stuff, but to have a, like a championship match, was that just to sell, send the fans home happy? I'm not sure. I'm not sure really the structure behind it. I don't know if they decided that they needed the United States title back uh, and it had to be done that way. I don't know if Sasaki was not going to be around WWTV for a while, so they had to switch the belt quick. I, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't on the pay-per-view because I mean, New Japan are quite famous for being fiercely protective of their of their brand and of their of their wrestlers. So maybe they didn't want Sasaki to lose on television to the one-man gang which i can fully understand uh perhaps there, there could be numerous reasons for it you know they, they might just run out of time i mean they had to dedicate 28 minutes to that ridiculous bloody triple threat effort didn't they so yeah perhaps they just ran out of pay-per-view time who knows who knows maybe that's something we can look into for a future episode there but that's it then that is starcade 1995 uh danny i suppose we better look at our highs and lows our plus points and our negatives uh, with our woos and our oh brothers, my friend. Woo! Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first this week, sir. Okie doke, mate. Do you want to start on a positive or start on a negative? We'll start with a positive this week. <laughs> okay. So, so my woo is definitely, there wasn't one bad match on this card. It wasn't like a terrible match that you just thought, oh, this is horrible. So my woo is the matches. That will definitely be mine. What's your side? Okay. So like the, the overall quality, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The overall in-ring quality. There wasn't something that was just, I mean, we talked about the triple threat match that went on a bit too long, but I mean, it wasn't terrible wrestling. No, so, yeah, no you're mine right. is I mean, matches. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I, I suppose I have painted a bit of a negative picture of that triple threat with my ranting about it. Uh, it's i didn't enjoy it but it may be somebody else's cup of tea it just dragged on for a bit too long for me and so on um my my woo i mean i want to give honorary mentions here to the benoit match and the eddie guerrero match because i thought those two were the matches of the night um, especially the benoit opener they, they deserve an honorary mention there and could have quite easily have been my woo for this this pay-per-view my woo moment but I'm going to go, and it's quite ironic, really, considering it's a, a woo. I'm going to go with Ric Flair and the Horseman back on top. Just because of how much I love proper, classic, old-school Ric Flair with the Horseman and Arn Anderson backing him up as the enforcer and so on. And the way the Horseman got the title back to Flair and the Horseman fold. So that's my woo for this week, my friend. The Horseman doing Horseman shit. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Uh, and what about something less positive then, Bert? What about our O-Brothers? What do you got for us? Oh, this one was hard, but it'd have to be 
to me, it was the influence of Hulk Hogan. Even though he wasn't there, his influence was felt. And with that Mean Gene thing, it really couldn't have been left off the car, off the pay-per-view. Maybe stick that on the pre-show. But yeah, it, mine would be Hulk Hogan vaguely appearing slash stalking Macho Man. That's my um, <laughs> oh brother of the week. <laughs> What's your side? Uh, I mean, you say you say that about Hogan um, influencing the pay-per-view. There would be people who would argue that he influenced the buy rate of the pay-per-view by not being there. You know, so that is one aspect, I suppose. But I'm with you on that one, mate. Hogan, the mention of Hogan saying he's coming back from his suspension. Okay, I could, I can, I can get on board with that. You're letting people know he's coming back in '96 from his apparent suspension. But to have him overshadowing another match on man title match by mentioning his name in the interview, it, it wasn't necessary. It just wasn't needed. But there we go. My oh brother, though, uh, it'll come to the surprise of absolutely no one, is the 28 minute triangle match because it just. Uh, it was the match I was looking forward to the most on the pay-per-view, but it was my least favourite of everything I watched. I, I feel it really let me down. So that's my uh, that's my old brother there, mate. That's cool, mate. Okay, then. Overall, and I think it's pretty easy to see where I think we're both going to end up going here. But overall, is this pay-per-view, Starcade 1995, what we're going to go for? Hit, miss, or middling? Big hit this week. Definitely. How about you, sir? Yeah, I agree. It's a hit for me. There was plenty going on in ring that was entertaining. There was plenty going on away from the ring you know, with, with Heenan and then interviews and so on. The World Cup of Wrestling, whereas there were certain moments it didn't quite sync up with, with certain wrestlers and certain styles. It was a really interesting concept and I really enjoyed it. I'd happily watch something like that again. And then, you know, as we said, the opener, the Eddie Guerrero match, Flair and the Horseman. Just, yeah, it's a big hit for me as well, Danny, mate. Fantastic stuff. And there we go. That, I guess, concludes 1995 for Nitro Nights. As a little bit of a change to the regularly scheduled programming, I suppose, is the saying that some people use. Uh, Next week, we have something slightly different for you here on Nitro Nights. We're not going to be looking at the next Nitro right away. That will follow the week after. Next week, we're going to be looking at the the WCW Nitro Nights 1995 in general and giving an overall review. So we've got a few categories there for uh, basically for, I suppose, wrestler of the year, uh, heel of the year, baby face of the year, promo of the year, even something as, as obscure as entrance theme of the year. We've got varying different categories that Danny and I will tackle. Um, we're just going to review what we've seen so far with the view of doing this for each and every calendar year of WCW that Nitro Nights covers. So this would be the first of our sort of annual reviews, I guess, even though it only spans from the first episode of Nitro to the end of the year, because that's all we've covered with Nitro Nights. But yeah, that's what we're going to be doing next week. And then the week after, we're back to our usual uh, usual programming, our usual our usual. Uh, method of bringing you shows and looking at the next episode of monday nitro and beyond uh danny i've had a blast mate do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you online yep uh, on twitter you can find me at scottish juggalo on uh if you want to hear more of me talking about wrestling you can hear me on a changing attitude you can hear me on one man's meat podcast and you can hear me here next next week where we'll be talking about um the awards section of 1995 
Indeed, we will. Indeed, we will. Go and chuck Danny a follow there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SJP Words and on Facebook. There's a group SJP, all the shows and info. And from there, you can get links and tweets and you know direct direct content links to all the shows I'm involved in, whether that's wrestling wise with this show and then chain wrestling which is live on a Monday night on the Radio Techers YouTube and Twitch streams, or whether you fancy something a little bit more sci-fi, time travel, wibbly-wobbly geekiness, which I cover with, first of all, looking at Doctor Who with our good friend Dan Griffin at the Doctor Who pod, and then also Quantum Leap, a show that I adored as a child growing up. We look at that on a weekly basis with Mr. Benny Mack in the Waiting Room podcast. Uh, but most importantly, you can find this show on Facebook and Twitter just by searching at Nitro underscore Nights. That's Nitro underscore Nights. And again, at SJP Words for me. to links to everything that I cover. Awesome stuff. We're getting into 1996 then, Danny. This is going to be a blast, mate. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Let's see what 96 can bring us. Exactly, mate. Exactly. I've had a great time. Thanks again, my friend. And to everyone else, as always... Thank you for listening.